0: How's everybody doing? Pretty good, good. Hope everyone had a fall, uh, good fall break. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story, and I'm going to use a word that's not really a church word. It's not a swear word, so you don't have to be too worried, but it's not really a, a church word either. But um, we were sitting there, so we went up to St. Louis for a couple of days to see my mother. That's where my mother lives. And uh, when we're at Grandma's house, we live on cookies, so I knew that um, we were going to be eating a lot of junk food, and I wasn't going to be able to go to the gym. So the night before we left, I went to the gym, and... I was getting ready to go to the gym and my family's in there in the house and we're sitting there talking and and I was like, man, I was like, I got to make sure I hit the gym hard tonight because I'm going to get fat this week. And my youngest looks at me and she goes, dad, it's cool. Your boobs still stick out further than your stomach. (laughs) And I was kind of like, I said, I know you meant that to be a compliment. (laughs) But whenever you say anything about boobs to a man, it's uh, doesn't make you feel very good, does it? So, uh, anyways, uh, my wife was literally on the floor after that. She thought that was absolutely wonderful. So, okay, so we have been working through. Uh, we'll get spiritual now, I promise. So, we've been working through a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. If you haven't been here, it's in the Old Testament, and um, again, fascinating book of the Bible very, very fascinating author, wrote this book towards the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he had realized that basically how he had used his influence, how he has used his affluence, was not a way that glorified God. So he had everything, right? Solomon had everything, all the power, all the wisdom, all the money. He had all the women. He had everything. And he squandered these things, and he didn't live a life that really glorified God. So we talked about last week, we were in chapter 3, and we asked this question, and it's something that I struggle with a lot. We asked ourselves, are we present, right? God's present. He's with us all the time, but are we present mentally, right? Are we looking around and noticing the things around us? Are we living kind of in the moment to where we're taking close attention, paying close attention to our relationships and our relationship with God and our work, and are we reading? Are we, are we, are we, are we in the moment? Are we moment? Are we present? This week, we're in chapter four. It's a short chapter. We'll get through it relatively quick. And it's going to hit on four different things. So what we're going to do is we'll go through chapter four, and then at the end of this chapter, we're going to kind of do like a self-evaluation, right? A self-assessment. And we're going to look at how we handle when we're treated oppressively or when we're treated unfairly. We're going to talk about how we handle work and success. We're going to talk about our relationships. And then we'll talk about how we handle leadership or authority. And I'm just gonna ask you a bunch of questions at the end. Questions that I can't answer for you, you're gonna have to answer for yourself. But we'll have to be honest with these questions and really think about how do we handle these things, okay? So if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. I know that's a really happy first slide there, but if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. We're right after the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. You should have got a notes handout on either entrance that you came into. Everything should be on the screens, and if you have a smartphone, everything is on the Experience Community app. Click on service times and sermon notes, and we should be in good shape, okay? All right? So I'm going to pray. We'll get into chapter four of Ecclesiastes today, and then we'll ask ourselves some questions at the end and kind of see how we, how we stack up against those, all right? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who came out this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. I pray that your word blesses our church today. I pray that we can be honest with ourselves, God, and that you'll keep your hand on us. Father, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for every church we work with all around the country. We pray for uh, the churches that we work with, God, outside of the country. We pray, Father, Lord, that everything we do today, that that it honors you, that it makes you proud, that if there's anyone in this room who is not a Christian, that maybe something today will spark their interest and maybe cause them to ask the right questions, God, and seek out the answers. And we just pray that you just sharpen us today, God. Lord, uh, make us better than what we were when we came in. We love you, we thank you, and uh, we give you all the praise, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to go back and break it down, and uh, let's see where God takes us, okay? Solomon says, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them, and they have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one that has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So to open this up, where are you at, clicker? He says, I have looked at all the evil acts that have been done under the sun. Now that's impossible. No one can see all the evil in the world except for God. So this is a hyperbole. This doesn't take away from any of the the credibility of the Bible, but sometimes some of the authors of the Bible would use these kind of exaggerations to prove a point, and this is one of them. But here's, here's his point, Solomon. Though you and I cannot see every evil thing that takes place on planet Earth, thank God we can't see it, but though we can't see everything bad that's taking place, It doesn't take a genius to look at the world and say, there's a lot of evil here. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. And if we're not careful, I don't know if anyone else has slipped into this besides me, you can sometimes look at how evil everything is and you can very easily slide into hopelessness and despair. That's why I encourage you, don't constantly look at the news and read the news all the time. I'm not telling you to be ignorant to things that are going on, but man, if you just go through your news feed every single day on on your phone, Man, it's really, really bad because they never report the good things. It's always just the evil, terrible things that happen. And it can be quite overwhelming at times. So what Solomon says is kind of interesting. He says there is no hope for those who, who are being oppressed. What he says is there's no one to comfort them. And then he says something even more interesting. He says there's no one to comfort those who do the oppressing. Now that's a fascinating statement. We typically care about those who are being treated unfairly, but we rarely care for those who are treating people unfairly. But what we learn here is that God loves both. In fact, some of the greatest contributors to the Bible, guys like Paul, were once pretty bad people that did a lot of oppression and hurt men, women, and children, right? And so we see that God not only wants people who are being taken advantage of to be saved, He wants the people who are being the oppressive ones to also be saved. That's uncomfortable for us. We don't don't like that. I remember uh, a little while back when when, uh, the Epstein guy killed himself in his cell, and I said that that grieved my wife and I. I actually got a hateful email about that. How dare you grieve for that terrible man? I grieve because he's in hell, and that's a terrible thing because it's the will of God that no one go to hell, and whenever the will of God is not played out, That bothers me, and it should bother you too. So both good people, theoretically, and bad people, we want all of them to be saved. And so that's God's heart. So this injustice really bothered Solomon. The evil in the world, he saw this, and it really kind of rocked him to the core. And so he goes so far to say, it would be better to be dead than not see all this evil. He even goes further than that and goes, it would be better to have never existed than to see all this evil. But here's where we can easily take this book out of context. If you haven't been here for the book of Ecclesiastes, you can take that part out from chapter four and go, well, the Bible says it's better that we have never existed. That's not what the Bible is saying. Solomon is emphasizing the point that without God, the darkness is overwhelming. Without God in our lives, it is hopeless. It is terrible. It'd be better not to exist if we don't have God in our lives. That's what he means by that, okay? He says, "'I saw that all labor and skillful work "'is due to one person's jealousy of another. "'This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. "'The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. "'Better one handful with rest "'than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind.'" Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task." So is Solomon telling us that when we work and when we work hard and when we're successful, it's just because we wanna be better than someone else? Is that what he's telling us right here? That's not what he's telling us. But at first, he says that all work is just because we're a bunch of jealous people, right? We wanna make sure we've got a bigger house than our neighbor or drive a nicer car or that we're promoted or that everyone notices us. What he's showing us is this. He says when one doesn't make work or success something that honors God, work and success can become all about selfish desire. And it can become all about being competitive. Now listen, I'm a competitive person. There's probably a lot of you in this group right now that are competitive people. Just because you're competitive doesn't make you evil. Competition in and of itself is not an evil thing. But we do have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? Why are we so competitive? Why do we want to be successful? Why do we want to have a 4.0 GPA or get that promotion or make six figures or whatever the case may be? What is the motivation behind our success? We also need to ask ourselves, this is where it gets really painful, guys. How do we feel when other people succeed? Now, if I were to ask all of you in this audience, do you find yourself to be a jealous, envious, or competitive person? Most of you would say, no, I'm not a jealous person. I'm not envious. But if you really are honest with yourselves, when you look across the street and you see that your neighbor is adding on a new house or a, a new room onto their house, or they just got a new car and you're like, man, they only work like 30 hours a week and I work 70 hours a week. Or when you, you see other things happening and, and, and you see people getting attention at work and you're like, I know how much they cut corners or whatever the case may be. Whenever the teacher favors that other student, and you know that that student is cheating off other people or procrastinating on their assignments, we find ourselves sometimes being very jealous and very envious and very competitive. Guys, I'll be super honest with you. I'll just go ahead and show you the darkness in my heart. As a pastor, sometimes I see other pastors who have churches one-tenth the size of this church. And they make more money than me, and they travel more than me, and they drive nicer cars than me. And I'm like, what the heck is up with this? Like, shouldn't I be at a different place? And you know what? Here's the thing about that. God will deal with those people, and God will deal with us. And what other people have is really none of our business. God will deal with us and how we spend what God has given us. Here's the other side of it. As Christians, we're to truly love people, and if we're to truly love people, we are to be happy when they are blessed. We are to look at them and we're to long for their well-being. And man, if your neighbor across the street gets a brand new car, praise God that they get to drive that nice car. I'm going to be content with my 2007 Rav 4, right? So do we love do we no one's ever envious of my car. so Do we love people properly? Do we want what's best for them? Do we want their well-being, right? Do we long for that? Here's the other thing that some of us can do, though. When we get jealous and when we get envious and we see that life is not fair, because it's not, life is not fair and sometimes people get attention that don't deserve attention and get promotions that don't deserve promotions, what we can do is we can fold our arms and just decide not to participate, that's what Solomon is talking about here. The the fool folds their arms and says, well, I'm just not going to engage in that. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to have relationships. I'm not going to have friends. Everyone sucks except for me. It's this this victim mentality, right? That it's everyone else in the world except for me. Everything is unfair. The world is out to get me. I'm going to fold my arms and not participate. Solomon says that's like self-cannibalism. Your envy Your jealousy, your fear will eat you alive. He says in verse five and verse six, it's better to have one handful and have some joy. So he's talking about balance. Yes, work hard. Yes, be successful, but you need to rest but you need to prioritize. You need to make sure that you're you're focusing on the most important things of life and not sacrificing your family or your relationship with God or your kids, right? Nothing wrong with being successful, nothing wrong with being competitive, nothing wrong with working your way up the corporate ladder as long as you're keeping things in priority, keeping things in check. But that all goes back to why do we do things? When it comes to work, when it comes to sports, when it comes to school, whatever we succeed in, we have to ask ourselves, what's our motivation? Listen, if money is the only reason you work, there's never gonna be enough money, never. If affirmation, everyone telling you how great you are, if that's why you succeed, there's never gonna be enough affirmation, ever, ever, ever. You'll never make enough money, you'll never have enough accolades and affirmation. That's because work is not designed for just self-pleasure and self-affirmation. The Bible says that we're to work as we're working unto God. Work is a form of worship. Listen, even if you're a student in here and you work part-time at Burger King, you may not think of that as an act of worship. But if you make that burger and it actually looks remotely like the picture on there, if you make the burger, right, and it looks good, and you wrap it up real nice and you smile as you give it to the customer, that glorifies God. You may not think of it that way, but it does. And man, customer service is so terrible nowadays. The person that receives that's like, can I hug you or like, you know, do something? Can we hang out? Can we exchange numbers? You know, like that is an act of God. And so we forget sometimes that if we will work as if we're working unto the Lord as a form of worship, If we will work as a way to serve other people, we can find joy in what we do. Even if it's just a part-time job that helps us get through school, we can find joy and we can find contentment in that kind of work. But that requires a heart change and that requires a mind change and that only comes by God, okay? I love what Solomon says though. He says, these people that work hard all the time, who are they working for? If all we're working for is notoriety, if all we're working for is ourselves, we're just gonna end up being lonely and we're gonna have heartache because selfish desire has an insatiable appetite. I remember again, here, Corey confession time again. I remember when I started the church, I said, God, when we hit 500 people, I'll be happy, right? You hit 500 and you're like, God, when we hit 1,000 people, <laughs> we'll be happy. Guys, we run like 4,000 people at this campus, and there's still this part of me that's like, am I doing enough? Have we accomplished enough? Uh, Do people think I'm good enough at this? And there's still this thing, because if it becomes about us, it's never enough. Selfish desire is this insatiable appetite. But again, when we do it unto the Lord and we trust God, but we have been fed this lie in the United States that if we can just get that next thing, we'll be happy. If you just get that car, you'll be happy. If you just get that promotion you'll be happy if you just have the best you know batting average on your team you'll you'll be happy and then you get these things and it doesn't satisfy does it this is why you younger people should hang out with some older people older people get this the closer we get to the end of our life the things that are truly important become kind of unavoidable We start thinking the older we get. I just turned 40, and even getting into my 40s, you start thinking of what is really important. You know, I might live another 30, 40 years. What do I want to do in those 30, 40 years? Like, what do I need to set up for my children and my children's children? And am I making sure that all my, you know, my my T's are crossed and I's are dotted? And the things that are truly important come into focus. Unfortunately, though, if we don't start thinking about these things at a younger age, we will burn so many bridges that by the time we do get old, there's not a time to right all the wrongs before time runs out. So we have to drop the illusion that we can have it all. That's what America tells you. You can have it all. Dream it and you can have it. It's not true. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Whenever your parents say you can do anything you want to do, that's not true. I'm five foot ten. I'm never going to play in the NBA. It's not going to happen, right? If you're six foot eight, you're never going to be a fighter pilot. You won't fit in the cockpit. <laughs> there are some things that we just cannot do. That's why we need to focus on the things that God wants us to do. That's why we need to focus on the things that are truly important. It's not just about our dreams. It's about his dreams and following his dreams for us. And his dreams are better for us than our own dreams. Okay? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is saying, in contrast to the competition in contrast to the isolation and always just working for personal gain, Solomon says you need to have friends in your life. You don't need to have a ton of friends in your life. Man, Jesus had 12 friends. One of them stabbed him in the back, but he really only had three super close friends. We don't need to have a ton of friends, but we do need some good friends. Now, whenever people say, all I need is God, theoretically, I guess that's true, but it's not really true because God has designed us to want to be around other people, to need other people, to have relationships. So yes, first and foremost, we need God, but God has created us. The Bible even says it's not good that man are alone, right? You're to have companionship and friendship and relationships around you. That's why the church is a big deal. Whenever people say, I can be a Christian and not go to church, that is not supported in that book. It is not supported you need community. We're designed for community. And the church was designed by God to bring all kinds of people together under one common focus, Jesus. That's what's so beautiful about not just the church, but this church in particular. What I love about the experience is you will find people of all kinds of walks in this place, You'll find people covered in tattoos. You'll find people who wear suits. You'll find people who have different socioeconomic backgrounds, different colors, different political affiliations. You'll find this crazy mixture of people. But what unifies us and brings us together is our focus on Jesus. And though we may vote differently or listen to different kinds of music or whatever the case may be, the fact that we're focusing on Christ, even people who are so diametrically opposed to each other, can be family. And we can bring each other together and we can focus on Christ. The reason why the church is so important is that when we struggle, we have someone to help us. We have a community to help us. When we wander off, when we, when we aren't attending church, when we're not praying, when we're, when we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, we have people to say, hey, 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 you need to be at church. You need to be hanging out with your wife. You need to be hanging out with your husband. You need to be reading your word. You need to be praying. When we're down, we have encouragement. We're not left alone, but we have people there to strengthen us and build us back up. The Bible teaches this, all throughout the Bible, it teaches the importance of community. Jesus in particular, in Luke chapter 10, when he sent out his disciples, he never sent them out alone. He sent them out in twos, just like this chapter says, because if someone attacks one of them or if one of them gets cold at night or whatever the case may be, you have someone with you. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, when he traveled, he traveled with people. There's lots of reasons why he traveled with people. But he needed support, he needed encouragement, he needed financial help. But these relationships were intentional, which means these people worked at these relationships. I get a kick out of people, right? They go to church, they show up 20 minutes late, they leave during communion, and then they write a one-star review that no one said hi to them. I came in 30 minutes late, sat there with my arms crossed in the corner, never made eye contact with anyone, split out the door, church is awful, no hospitality, one star, right? Crazy. Here's the thing, this old aphorism really works. I went to look for a friend and found none. I went to be a friend and they were everywhere. You know what that means? Be nice to people. If you're ever curious why no one ever talks to you, maybe because you're a jerk. Maybe more people would talk to you if you talked to more people, right? Instead of getting on there and just writing a bad review about every single place you go because people didn't make a beeline for you and just hug you and you know, bow down at your feet, man, say hi to some people, talk to some people, make some effort to be a friendly person, you'll be shocked at how many friendly people are around you, right? So this rings true. Now, if we have these good friendships, If we have these good relationships, because two is very powerful. The word synergy, if you're in business at all, they'll use this word a lot. Synergy basically means that one plus one equals three. Now, what does that mean? If you study it scientifically, if one person can lift 100 pounds, if you add another person, it's not that they can lift 200, they can actually lift about 300 pounds. Exponentially, what you can do goes up a lot higher when you add another person to the mix. So when you have two people that can do more than just one, add God to the mix and it becomes an eternal impact. It becomes a spiritual impact. What does that mean? A healthy marriage can do a lot if you throw God into that healthy marriage. If you throw God in, that, in those two people, it may not just impact their kids, it may impact a neighborhood. It may impact a school. It may impact generations to come. Your friendships. Every human interaction you have, if God is thrown into the mix, it does something extremely powerful and it says it's very hard to break that bond. Very, very strong when God is in the mix. You know what the problem is with a lot of people though, going back to the person that folds his arms and writes the one-star review, is a lot of us don't really want church. We want lifestyle enclaves. What does that mean? It means we wanna hang out with people that vote like us, look like us, listen to the same music we do, they affirm everything we do. They're never gonna argue with us, they just affirm us, right? We don't wanna be told that we're wrong, we just want people around us who said, hey, we're just like you, right? We've created this little bubble and we've created this very safe place to hang out and that is not the church. That's not what real community looks like. A lot of people want grace without accountability. Just show me some grace. I don't want you to tell me that I need to be at church or change my life. You're just a judgmental person when you do that. I just want grace. Just give me grace. I wanna make my mistakes. I wanna live how I want, but whenever I want forgiveness, God needs to give it to me instantly, but I don't wanna be held accountable. We want love, but we don't want boundaries. Boy, the church loves to talk about love. God is love. Love is love. We all love. I love love, right? <laughs> live, laugh, love. Love, 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 love. Everything's love. Do you know Jesus said in the book of John, I discipline you because I love you? Love has discipline. Love has boundaries. How dare you, Corey? I've used the fish bowl analogy with you before. If you love your fish, you need to have it in a bowl. If you don't have it in a bowl, it suffocates and dies. And that's not very loving, is it? There needs to be boundaries with love. Man, set the fish free. It just needs to be free. There's no boundaries with love. It's suffocating, gasping for air, right? People want love, but they don't want rules. People want encouragement without correction. I had a pastor one time tell me, Corey, you just don't encourage me enough. It's because you're not doing a good job. If you're doing a terrible job, should I tell you that's great? That's not loving you. If you're not doing a good job, hey, can I show you how to do that the right way? Oh, You're not encouraging me, because you're failing. We want encouragement, but we don't want correction. Do you know the Bible says that this book was written to correct us, to set us on the right path, to show us? Because, listen, what kind of monsters would we raise if everything our kids do, we just go, hey, that's really good, baby, that's really good. It's good that you're throwing that temper tantrum on the floor of Target, that's good, baby, right? <laughs> get up, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that comes from experience. Um. <laughs> all right, last part. <laughs> it just got too personal there with all of us, didn't it? A bunch of moms nodding their heads. All right. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who are before him, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This is futile and a pursuit of the wind. What in the world does this mean? What he means is this. Solomon proposes that there seems to be an advantage in always having fresh, new leadership, right? Out with the old, in with the new. We want someone who's teachable, right? We want someone who's, who's malleable, who's, who's young, and they have new ideas that excite us. Now, it's not so much about age. It's about the willingness to learn, right? So that all sounds good on the front end, but eventually these new ideas... These new leaders, they get old, right? People literally get old, their ideas get old. So what we do, what we do is we find ourselves in this cycle. I'm talking about us, right? We want a new politician that has fresh new ideas on how we do things. That person gets in, after a couple of years, we're like, we're bored, out with them, give us another one. We do it with religious leaders. Well, we want this fresh, young, hip pastor that tells us these new things, right? Interestingly enough, there's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says, and all these principles don't move or change because some hip young guy with a bun and a you know, crafted beard tells you this, but that's what we want. We want some new ideas. We want some new blood in there. Do you know the devil knows that this is how we operate and what he's going to do? Because here's what we do in America. We do it all over the world, but we really do it in America very well. We make idols of people. We make idols of politicians, and we make idols of religious leaders. So the devil watches this, right, because he's smart. And the devil says, I'm going to send two individuals. One is going to be an evil politician, and one is going to be an evil religious leader. They're called the two beasts. It's in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist. And here's the point of all this, guys. Listen, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, And I'm not trying to argue or debate you or anything like that. But whenever people start looking for politicians and religious leaders to save them, one day two are going to come up and they're going to be very well-spoken and they're going to do new things and they're going to do some magic tricks and some miracles. They're going to say all the right things and they're going to deceive people to follow Satan. Your hope is not in a politician. Your hope is not in a religious leader. Our hope is only found in the kingdom of God, and we need to remember that, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor authority. The Bible says that. Well, what if they're corrupt? We're still to honor authority. Jesus did it during the Roman Empire. Daniel did it during the Babylonian Empire, that we are to honor the governing authority. That doesn't mean that we cave into our biblical foundation. Again, Daniel is the perfect example of that in Daniel chapter six. He even worked for the government that passed a law to say to worship this huge statue. He didn't worship the statue. He prayed to his God and he was arrested for it. And and so anyways, we see that we are to respect the government, but we have to discern what is right and what is wrong. And ultimately the laws of God trump the laws of of man. But we are to be respectful. Respectful. So let's take this evaluation here at the end, okay? We talked about four things. The first one is this, and I, 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 I hate to burst your bubble. There's always gonna be bad things that happen to good people. There's always gonna be oppression in the world. There's always gonna be evil. There's always gonna be people that take advantage of other people. It's always gonna happen. So the question is how do we handle that? What do we do with oppression? Do we even care that this is going on? Now, we don't see it a whole lot in the United States. We see a little bit of it, but we don't see a whole lot of oppression towards people in the United States, especially towards Christians. But other places in the world, like Egypt, do you know there used to be more monasteries in Egypt than anywhere else on planet Earth once upon a time? Do you know right now it's 8% Christian because they are literally killing Coptic Christians all the time, nailing them to crosses still to this day. Do we care? Do we do anything about it? Do we ever look beyond just our little bubble of the United States to see all these awful things that are happening in other places? Do we care? How do we react when we're oppressed? Do we return evil for evil? The Bible says not to do that. Well, Corey, if someone pushes me, I push them back. Is that biblical? Well, I'd shoot someone if they try to take my stuff Really? Jesus says if they take your shirt, offer them your shoes too. We don't like stuff like that, do we? I didn't write that or say it. That was Jesus. But we don't like stuff like that. How do we handle it when we're treated unfairly, right? I mean, I can show you how Jesus handled it when he was falsely arrested and thrown in the Sanhedrin and punched and spat upon. It says he remained silent. Are we sometimes the oppressor? (laughs) no, not me, Corey. I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm a jerk. <laughs> Someone laughed over here. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but, but sometimes I'm oppressive. Sometimes I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Do you ever do that? I do. The second thing is when it comes to success, why do we do the things that we do? Do we do it out of jealousy? Are we driven because we just want to be the best? Are we driven because we just want to make a bunch of money? Are we driven because we want everyone to recognize us and know us? Guys, this is going to hurt, but that's why a lot of you post that stuff on Facebook. Hey, look what I did. It's not because you really care about succeeding at the thing you did. You want everyone to know that you succeeded. You know the Bible says not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? (laughs) That means don't go bragging to everyone about how good you are. That's what social media is. Look what I've done. Look at this. Look at this. And what it is is there's this emptiness inside of us, and we think that all this affirmation is going to fill that emptiness. And it doesn't, does it? Do we think achievement's going to satisfy our need to be known? You think just because you have 5,000 friends or 2,000 people like that picture that, okay, I feel good about myself. But you just need one more picture. You need one more person to like it. You need one more thing to happen. And it never satisfies, does it? Have we bought into this lie that we can have it all? Have we bought into this lie that it's all about our dreams? Listen, guys, nothing wrong with you having aspirations. I remember when I got my black belt in Taekwondo, I wanted to get it in a year. And that was a big goal for me. And when I hit it, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I got this, I put it right at eye level when you meet me in my office, just so everyone knows, right? It's right there. There's nothing wrong with aspirations or goals. But do we have this false notion that it's all about my dreams and let me ask you this what does our selfish ambition really cost us well my little girl's the best softball player on the team we travel all the time everyone knows who she is she's going to get a scholarship but you've never taught her who jesus was well Corey, it's travel baseball i don't care it's your son's salvation Have you taught them to love God? Have you taught them to love the church? Listen, do you spend more time teaching your kid how to throw a curveball than you do on how to read the word of God and pray and love the Lord? What is it costing you? Well, Corey, we got into the best neighborhood in town, but you're gonna end up in divorce. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? What does the success really cost you? Well, Corey, I make six figures now. Do you have a relationship with your kids? Your wife's been talking to another man because you're never home. Is it worth it? It's cost you your relationship with the Lord. It's cost you your integrity. What is the real price of selfish ambition? Let me ask you, do you have good people in your life? Do you have good friends? You don't have to have a ton of friends, but you need about three really good friends in your life. Do you have people that sharpen you and make you better? Ladies, are you hanging out with other women that tell you to leave your husband? Those are not your friends. Amen. Those are not people you need to be around. Guys, are you hanging out with other guys that just want to go get drunk and still live like they're in high school or college, even though you're all married and you should be home? Those aren't your friends. That's not iron that sharpens you. That's dull wood, and it's eventually going to make you dull as well. It's not going to help you. It's not who you need to be around. But do we even want to be held accountable? Do you guys want that? I don't know. A lot of people don't want a pastor, they want a motivational speaker. Well, when I say things in the Bible that cut to us and tell us that we need to make some changes, well, I don't want that. I don't want to be held accountable. How dare you ask me if I've been at church? It's all about the money with those pastors. That's why they want you to be there. It's not because they care about your soul. Do we want true community? Do we want to run to the mess? Do we want to talk about the hard things? Do we want to be vulnerable? Do we want to be honest? Or do we just want this lifestyle enclave? Do you want everyone to look exactly like you? And talk just like you, and vote just like you, watch the same TV shows as you. Is that what you want? It's not what I want. I don't think it's what God wants. So, not only do we have good relationships, is God in those? Well, Corey, my wife, and I get along great. That's wonderful. Is God in the mix? Well, I have a great relationship with my kids. Is God in the mix? I got a lot of friends. Is God in the mix? Are you guys focusing on good things? Is God there doing something not just powerful, but eternal and spiritual? The last question, and this is a hard one. Do we compromise our faith and belief because honestly, we think that something here on earth is going to save us? I know we wouldn't admit that, but a lot of us live like it. Guys, and I'm not trying to knock on politics. I'm really not. But so many of you are so hyper-focused on who gets elected, that I think we really forget that God is always in control. God is always in control. I'm not telling you not to vote, I vote. I'm not telling you not to be engaged. I feel like I'm relatively engaged. But at the end of the day, I have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And whoever is in power, I'm just quoting you the Bible, don't crucify me for this. Whoever is in power, it's because God allowed them to be there, that's what the word says. So, if Barack Obama's in office, it's because God wanted him to be there. Donald Trump's in office, it's because God wanted him to be there. That doesn't mean that everyone that's in office is good, but sometimes God needs to humble us by bad leaders. Corey, how dare you? Saul, right? It has happened before. Where do we find our hope? Do we find it in a man or a woman on earth? Do we find it in a political party or a church? Listen, love the church. But do we find our hope in some cool, charismatic speaker that has fresh ideas? And I've never heard it like that before. Do we find our hope in a bottle or food or sex? Where do we run for peace, for hope, for tranquility? Is it in some new idea? Or is it in the everlasting arms of God, the strong tower, the rock, something that has never moved, Never wavered. It's not a new idea. It's the original idea. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And he's never changed. So, where do we run for hope? Right? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and you are not a believer, you're not a follower of God, but maybe you're curious. Listen, you don't need to be embarrassed. You don't need to feel weird about this. Up here to my right, your left, uh, Isaac is up here at the front. He's got a long-sleeve T-shirt on. Isaac has a master's degree in theology. He was a chaplain in the army. He would love to help you with any questions you may have. If you want to get a cup of coffee with him or maybe get lunch, if it's a long conversation, he'd be more than happy to set that up as well. But if you have any questions, you're, you're welcome to come up here and ask Isaac, okay? Okay. On both sides of the stage, we have men and women that would love to pray with you. If you need prayer for absolutely anything, it can be something small, you know, job, promotion, it can be something big, cancer, a loved one is about to pass away, whatever the case may be, come up here and let someone pray with you. Real quick, though, the rest of you, there is communion available for you. Everyone is welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ as long as you've asked God to forgive you. But in this time today, I would ask yourselves, how do we handle evil and oppression? How do we handle success and what's our motivation? Do we have good relationships and is God in those relationships? And then the last one, where do we run for hope? When we take communion, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, it should remind us where our hope is. That God gave his only son, that if we will just believe in him, We won't die, but we'll have everlasting life. It is the only thing that is stable and has always been stable. Everyone is welcome to take that. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, there's communion, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much. I love, love, love this congregation, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, that you keep your hand on us. God, sometimes when we ask these questions, it hurts a little bit because sometimes we realize that we struggle with some of these things. God, if anything we've talked about today has been a struggle, if some of us have, have maybe not leaned on you for hope, if we have not handled oppression well or success well, or if we haven't had good relationships, whatever the case may be, God, Lord, help us with that. Let us be humble and reach out to you. And God, Lord, Lord just intervene in our lives. Father, bless my brothers and sisters in this room. Keep them strong till we meet again. We love you and we thank you and we pray all these things in your son's name. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.